0: November 16, 2017 My friends and I from college were going to the cinemas We're ready to watch a highly anticipated movie that's about to come out Justice League Now it's a, it's a movie with all sorts of superheroes All the classics are there Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, The Flash, Aquaman They're all in this one movie teaming up together to fight the bad guy And I was pretty excited to watch this. I'm a bit of a superhero fan, so I was pretty excited. Now, to know where this story goes, you don't have to know anything about superheroes. So don't feel worried at all. The only thing you have to know to understand this story is what it feels like to have a broken heart. Because my heart was broken by this movie. I was so excited for it, and I came out, and it was terrible. It was not good at all. The jokes were terrible, the pacing was rushed, the editing was bad, and the whole, all the colours in the movie made the, everything look ugly. I was just absolutely disappointed, absolutely gutted by the fact that this movie was not good. But it wasn't just me. Millions of fans across the world were all disappointed by this movie. And it, it began a movement called Release the Snyder Cut. What is the Snyder Cut? Well, the original director of the movie, Justice League, was a man called Zack Snyder, where we get the the term Snyder from. And so Snyder shot an entire movie, and he showed it to his bosses, and his bosses looked at it, and they went, No, we don't like this. They kicked him off the project, and they brought in a completely new director to take over. And this new director, he used some of the old footage, but he shot new footage, he added in new lines, new scenes, he took out old scenes... And he made a completely different movie. That's the one that everyone saw in the cinemas. Everyone was heartbroken by. And so it began this movement of people who wanted to see what the original movie was supposed to look like. What was the original um, director's vision for this project? Both of these movies had the exact same characters, the exact same storyline, the exact same beginning, middle, end. And yet, two directors had made two completely Different movies. Now it actually took five years for the original version of the movie to finally come out. It only came out about a month ago. So I've had to wait five years for this. It's, it's been painful. It's been very painful. So how different were these two versions of the movie? Well, for one, the the version that we saw in cinemas was two hours long. The Snyder cut was Four hours. It was a mammoth of a movie. So there's two additional hours to this movie. One of the other biggest differences is the way that the screen is um, shaped. So here there's a comparison between the two. You'll notice the one on the right is the one that came out in cinemas. It's very long. But the one to the left is very square. It's like a box shape. It's very square-like. So even the way that the movie is framed is very different. One's long and one's very box shaped. You'll notice as well that the colors are already very different. The one on the right is a lot more, the colors are a lot more vibrant, they're a lot more turned up. For half an hour of the film, in fact, one, uh, the original version is completely set at nighttime. The other one has this gore, this ugly red color. I have no idea why they chose to make everything red. Um, even they change Superman's suit. In one, he's blue. the other, he's wearing a black suit. They completely change what the hero of the movie looks like. And so the, in order to, you know, they, they got rid of certain scenes. They added some new scenes in. The way that the movie opens is completely different. They both set up the same plot, but both open up their movie in a slightly different way based on how they want you to see the main hero, Superman. Both of them also have a different ending. Both give a different way of how the hero defeats the villain. A different composer was brought on, so there are completely two different types of music in the movie. And so you just have this completely different movie as to what you originally watched. Now, if that wasn't enough, the original director decided to release another version of his film. This one he decided to do completely in black and white. And so now, this is unparalleled, no no movie has ever been like this where there are three different versions of the exact same story. So an example of this, you've got three different versions. The bottom one uh, is the original, or the one that came out in movies, the left is the original, and the right is the black and white version, so you see all three are exactly the same. Then we have a scene where there's a slight difference, then there's a scene where They added it in, the other director chose to cut it out, and then back again all have the exact same scene. So in just one scene, there are so many minute differences, and it's so fascinating to see what the directors chose to keep, what to edit out, what to make different, how they portrayed their heroes, how to portray the villain. It's a very fascinating study. But I want to propose to you that this, this concept, this phenomena is... It's unique in films, but it's an old idea that we've had for about 2,000 years. In fact, you might be holding in your hands this very concept this morning. Because when we look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see a very similar concept to this. All four Gospels tell the exact same story with the exact same hero, Jesus. And he's going to defeat the exact same villains, sin, Satan, and death. But each gospel decides to portray that story in a slightly different way. Both have different beginnings to their gospels. Both have a different ending of how the hero defeats uh, the evil. Each of them decides, some of them choose to edit out things, some choose to keep in certain stories. Even the runtime, we could say, of the gospels is long. Mark is a very short two-hour version, we could say, whereas Matthew is a four-hour epic. It's very large and long. And so what is so fascinating is that each of the gospel writers, each of them has something unique to say. We could call them that they're the director of this movie about the life of Jesus. And as they're trying to show us about the life of Jesus and teach us, They give different beginnings, middle, and end. The the plot stays the same. The story, the characters are all the same. And yet different scenes are added. Different lines of dialogue are here taken. And each gives a unique perspective of who Jesus is. And so this morning we're going to just have a brief overlook at how each of these four gospel writers wants you to see Jesus. What is their way... Of revealing to you the person of Jesus. So let's begin with Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll just simply go through three short questions with each Gospel. The first being, who wrote the Gospel? Any guesses as to who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? (laughs) No trick question here. Matthew wrote it. So Matthew is a Jew. And the audience that Matthew is writing to is the Jewish community. And so the depiction that Matthew is trying to convey to his specific audience is this, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. So Matthew is going to tell his story of Jesus in a very specific way that reveals to its readers that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. So we begin in Matthew chapter 1. How does Matthew decide to start... The story of his hero Jesus, beginning in Matthew one verse one, it says, "The book of geneal, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judah and his brothers, and it goes on and on. It, it mentions other famous characters we know, such as Boaz and Ruth, Jesse, David the king, Solomon, and it goes through all the descendants of." the kings of Judah, Josiah, Hezekiah, and then it even goes to the rulers who uh, ruled after the exiles, such as Zerubbabel, and it brings you all the way, Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was born Jesus, who is called the Christ, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14, from David to the captivity of 14, and from the captivity to Christ another 14. This is a very unusual way to start a story, by giving a a family history, essentially. It's a long list of um, who's who in the family of Jesus. But why why would Matthew choose to begin his gospel with a genealogy? If Matthew is trying to convey to us that Jesus is this promised Messiah of the Old Testament, it makes sense that what he does is begins by pointing towards the Old Testament. He goes all the way back to Abraham, who God made a covenant with. And part of that covenant was that the Messiah would come from Abraham's bloodline. So Matthew's saying, look, it starts with Abraham and the bloodline continues. And then a similar covenant was made with King David. God said to King David, a king will come from your bloodline that will rule the world, this promised Messiah figure. So we get to David and it comes through all the kings. And finally, it comes to Jesus. So Matthew is trying to convey to his Jewish audience, he goes, all of these biblical heroes of the Old Testament, and the people that God made a covenant with, such as Abraham and David, all of them, their descendants, their bloodline culminates with Jesus. Jesus truly is from this kingly bloodline. He is a descendant of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And even most of these people are their kings, their rulers. So, there's, as you're reading this list, Jesus is coming from a long family history of kings and rulers. Now, if we turn to just the, uh, the next page, Matthew wants to tell us about the birth of Jesus. How does Jesus arrive on the scene? Have a look in chapter 2. Who is at the birth of Jesus in Matthew's gospel? In Matthew chapter 2, who comes to see Jesus when he's first born? The Magi, the three wise men. So these are almost royal dignitaries from another country. And what do they bring to Jesus? Gold, Gold, frankincense, myrrh, gifts that you would bring to a king, a ruler. And yet they're giving it to this young child. And so Matthew is trying to convey to us that even as a child, even as a baby, these magi from a distant land travel all the way to visit the King of Kings. Jesus truly is the ultimate king. and you'll know we'll, yeah, we'll get to how other the other gospel writers depict this story as well. So Matthew is intent in showing us that Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah. He gives us the genealogy all the way from Abraham through to Jesus. Jesus truly is a descendant of this covenant. So he's the Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and he is the King of Kings. He wants you to see Jesus as his ultimate ruler. Well, what about the Gospel of Mark? Mark's Gospel is incredibly different from Matthew. Matthew is the longest Gospel. Whereas Mark is the shortest. He's very quick. Um, Matthew, he likes to talk about all of the long speeches that Jesus gives. Mark isn't so interested in that. Mark likes to talk about the miracles, the healings, the things that happened. So let's ask ourselves uh, three questions again. Ah, The Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, the promised King of Kings. The author, Mark... His audience is to a Roman audience primarily. And so if, if Mark is trying to convince Roman people that Jesus is who he is, it doesn't make much sense for Mark to appeal to the Old Testament. It doesn't make sense for him to go, hey, he's the promised Jewish Messiah. Because the Romans, it's irrelevant to them. They don't know who Abraham, David, Solomon are. These names are meaningless. So Mark doesn't start with a genealogy He doesn't try and make it appear as though Jesus is um, some Old Testament prophesied Messiah. Instead, for Mark, he portrays Jesus as a miracle worker. Uh, This Jesus is almost like a fast-paced action hero slash servant. This Jesus, he goes quickly and he does impressive miracles. Um, Let's begin with Mark chapter 1 to see how differently... Mark decides to open up his gospel. So Matthew opened up with a genealogy. Mark, in chapter 1, has a very different approach. In verse 1, he says, This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he gets straight into the story of Jesus' baptism. He (laughs) does the temptation in the wilderness story in two verses. And then Jesus begins his Galilean ministry. It took him 14 verses and he's straight into the Galilean ministry. And then have a look. Once Jesus starts his ministry, what does he do? He casts out an unclean spirit. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He heals many people after Sabbath. He cleanses a leper. He heals a paralytic. This Jesus is just, and he's, he's performing all of these miracles. He's going all over the place, performing miracle after miracle, healing after healing. This Jesus is very fast as well. In fact, Mark uses this word immediately 13 times in just chapter 1 of his gospel. Let's have a look if we can find them. Mark chapter 1, verse 10. Immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending. Verse 12. Immediately, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Verse 18. The disciples immediately left their nets and followed him. Verse 20, immediately Jesus called to them. Verse 21, they went out into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath... Are you getting sick of this word (laughs) yet? Verse 28, immediately the fame of Jesus spread throughout all the region. Verse 31, so Jesus came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her. Verse 42, as soon as Jesus had spoken, immediately... The leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Mark's been pretty clear with what he's trying to convey here. This Jesus does things immediately. He's fast. He goes from point A to point B. He does one miracle here, and immediately he goes somewhere else. And it's because Jesus is trying to do as much good as he can in his earthly ministry. This Jesus, he just goes from point A to point B, healing as many people as he can. Even if you come into verse three, uh, this almost thesis statement for Mark's Gospel, or well, we'll begin in verse two, sorry. It says, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So this is a reference to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was to make a straight path for Jesus' ministry. But what's so fascinating is the word straight there is the exact same word that Mark uses for immediately. So you could say, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths immediately or make his paths immediate. So John the Baptist's role is to make Jesus' path as fast and immediate as possible. So for Mark, Jesus is this servant who goes around and heals uh, people and performs miracles But he does so with joggers on. Mark's Jesus is wearing nikes, and he's running from point A to point B. He runs from one place to the next, seeing how he can help people physically and spiritually. So who is Jesus to Mark? He's a miracle worker. He's a man on a mission. This Jesus is determined. He knows what his goal is, and he executes it. And he's a fast-paced servant. So he's got his joggers on. That's a, a way for us to remember How Mark views Jesus. Let's come now to the Gospel of Luke. What is Luke's unique perspective of who Jesus is? Well, Luke, of course, is the author. His audience is primarily Gentiles or non-Jewish people. So Matthew wrote to the Jews. Mark wrote to the Romans. Luke here writes to non-Jewish people. And the way that Luke conveys his view of Jesus is that uh, Jesus is a humble servant. And while Mark's Jesus is fast and goes like a runner, Luke's Jesus is very slow. Luke's Jesus likes to walk. And this Jesus, he he takes time to spend with people and get to know them. That's why he's slow and he walks, because he's spending time with people, and he's a friend to the outcast. This is a very important theme in Luke's gospel, that Jesus will go beside and walk with the people that are usually looked down on in society. How does Luke's gospel begin? Well, Luke also decides to tell us how Jesus was born. Mark Mark didn't really care. Mark doesn't care how Jesus came on the scene. He just wants you to know what Jesus is doing now that he's on the scene. But Luke, he wants to, like Matthew, take the time to tell us how Jesus was born. And he starts with a story of um, Zacharias and Elizabeth. These were relatives of Mary and Joseph. And Zacharias and Elizabeth, they're quite humble people. Zacharias is a priest, but both of them are old and neither of them have children. Then when Jesus is born later in the temple... He is, uh, two prophets come to him, Anna and Simeon. And we have the main characters as well of Mary and Joseph. So it's very interesting that Luke, in the very beginning of his gospel, pairs off um, a male and a female character in each of his stories. And this carries through, through a lot of his gospel. He'll always make sure to balance the character where a man appears, balancing it out with uh, a woman. Similarly, if we have a look in chapter 2, chapter 2, who is it that arrives at the birth of Jesus? So Matthew, he wanted to tell you that the three wise men, or we don't know how many, but the, the magi, the wise men, were the ones who came to see the young Jesus. But in Luke chapter 2, have a look in verse 8, have a skim read. Who is it that turns up to Jesus' birth in Luke's gospel? The shepherds. Very different from prestigious wise men from a foreign country who bring gifts for a king, isn't it? Now, of course, we know that both of these stories are true, that Jesus was visited by both wise men and shepherds. But isn't it fascinating that Matthew, because he wants to see Jesus as this king, he goes, I'll put in the story where the royal dignitaries come and the shepherds I won't worry about. Whereas Luke, he goes, well, I want my Jesus to be a friend to the outcasts, the friend to those looked down on in society. My Jesus is very down to earth. And so he goes, I know that the wise men visited Jesus, but I won't put that in my gospel. My gospel will have the story of the shepherds. These lowly people who would look down on in society, these will be the ones that I'll say were at the birth of Jesus. Very fascinating. And of course, throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus continues to associate himself with people who are looked down upon. We have the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. No one liked the tax collectors. And Luke is the only one to tell us about the story of Zacchaeus. Luke features many more parables about uh, many more stories about women who Jesus helped. This Jesus is very much uplifting to women in, during a time in which they were very much looked down upon. And even more fascinating, in Luke chapter 3, Luke does decide to tell us the genealogy or the family history of Jesus as well in verse 23. So just like Matthew, he decides to eventually tell you who Jesus' family tree is. But this time, rather than starting at Abraham and going forwards, Luke decides to start with Joseph and go backwards. And he ends with Adam, the son of God. I find that very interesting. For Matthew and a Jewish audience, he's appealing to the fact that Jesus comes from this long line of you know, Jewish heroes. And so Jews reading Matthew, they'd read it and go, "Yes, I know Jesus. He's the descendant of Solomon, David, Abraham." Luke, rather than start at the end, uh, start earlier and come forward, he starts with Jesus and he points Jesus all the way back to Adam. And by pointing back to Adam, everyone comes from Adam, all humanity, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well, all come from the family tree of Adam. So it's as though Luke is trying to point back to his Gentile readers and say, look, Jesus, he can be traced all the way back to the very first man that all nations come from. And so he's being very inclusive in saying that Jesus is not just for the Jews, He's for the Gentiles because his family tree goes all the way back to Adam, from whom all family trees come from. And if you were to read the names of the people, the names are actually different in the genealogies. Matthew follows the family tree of Joseph, and it's all these kings and rulers. Whereas Luke's genealogy is actually the family tree of Mary. He traces the other side of the family, And Mary's family tree, some of them, some of the characters we know, others not so much. Most of the characters are kind of nobody's common people. There are a few biblical heroes in there, but many of these names are are lost to history. We don't know much about them. But Luke's being intentional in that way. He's saying that Jesus also, he does come from a line of kings and rulers, but he also comes from a family tree of Common, ordinary people. This Jesus is very down-to-earth, very much looking uh, to be a humble servant to anyone. Even Jesus' resurrection I find incredibly funny. Um, each, each gospel writer tells a slightly different tale of what happened after the resurrection. And Luke's Jesus, Luke's Jesus, as we said, is constantly walking He's not running like Marx is. Jesus, Luke's Jesus is walking. He's talking with people. He spends time. He gets to know them. He listens to them. And I love the fact that when Jesus resurrects in Luke's gospel, the very first thing he does is he finds two guys walking on the road to Emmaus and he pulls up beside them and he goes, Oh, I'll come for a walk with you guys. That's how consistent this, this depiction of Jesus is. Even when he resurrects from the dead, he just goes straight back to slowly walking with people, talking with them, listening to them, explaining the scriptures to them. So who was Jesus to Luke? He was a humble man, a slow walker, and a compassionate helper. Jesus, the slow, humble servant. And finally, we reach the Gospel of John. John, of course, was one of Jesus' disciples, one of his closest disciples. And John was writing to a Christian audience. This is Jews and Gentiles all kind of combined. And what John was seeking to do was affirm the faith of these believers. He was writing these stories to make Christians feel assured of their faith. And John, he wrote his gospel much later than the other three. And we find that John, he's decided to include many stories that Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not include in their Gospels. In fact, almost all of the stories in John are unique to his Gospel. And how does John want us to see Jesus? How does he want to depict who Jesus is? To John, Jesus is the divine God-man. Jesus is fully God and yet fully man. John wants to show us the full deity of Christ in human form. And so if we go to John chapter 1, we begin to see this this depiction of Jesus as divine. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Where where is that phrase, in the beginning? Where where do we hear that elsewhere? Genesis Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And yet here, the word Jesus, (coughs) pardon me, John writes, in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Jesus, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend. So John begins his gospel by bringing your mind back all the way to Genesis chapter 1. And he says, The very God that you read of in Genesis that made the entire world, that is Jesus. (coughs) Pardon me. And yet, in verse 14 it says, the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. So, this Jesus, the creator of the entire universe, this divine, powerful creator, also became a man in human flesh. <clears throat> John also. <coughs> pardon me, my throat's gone. John also includes other stories that are not present in the other Gospels, such as the raising of Lazarus, the Samaritan woman at the well, the man healed at the pool of Bethesda, and almost all of Jesus' sermon at Gethsemane, the last half of John's Gospel, is unique to his. And John has this consistent pattern. Jesus performs a miracle. And then he gives a long speech explaining what the spiritual meaning of that miracle is. There are no parables in the Gospel of John. John isn't so concerned with the parables. He wants to go straight to the miracle and explain what does this miracle tell us about who Jesus is? How does this miracle reveal to us that God is this divine, Jesus is this divine God-man? So, who was Jesus to John? He was the Son of God, and yet also the Son of Man, the divine God-Man. So let's briefly recap each of these four perspectives, but also apply it to our personal lives. So in knowing the author, the audience, and the way that these gospel writers wanted to depict Jesus, it'll be able to help us read and in, read and interpret these Gospels for ourselves in our personal uh, devotional life. Sometimes we open up the Gospels and we can feel that they read kind of the same, when in reality they're very, very different. And I hope this has given you, this brief overview has just given you a few tools to help you understand the differences and the unique aspects of each of these Gospels. So let's briefly recap and find a way to personally apply this not only to our biblical reading but to our personal spiritual lives. Matthew, Jesus as the king of kings. Matthew reminds us that Jesus is the ultimate king. He's the king of this world now and he controls all of human history, all politics, rulers and kings. It's all in his hands as the ultimate ruler and king. And not only that, but one day he will establish his earthly kingdom here on this world. And this kingdom will last for eternity. Furthermore, if, we can, if Jesus fulfilled every prophecy about himself in the Old Testament, about his first coming, why should we not believe that all the prophecies about his second coming won't also take place? Matthew is very clear. He gets all, as many Old Testament prophecies as he can. And he says, look, Jesus fulfilled every single one. And that can give us hope that when it comes to the second coming, all those prophecies will once again be fulfilled like it was the first time. Kings also have laws. They have laws to govern their land. And Matthew does the same. Matthew loves talking about the law. And it's a good thing for us to to acknowledge. Laws in a kingdom create order. They tell us how to live. And so the laws of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel help us to follow God in a loving response to the salvation that he has won for us. And I love that Jesus in Matthew, he ends his gospel with Jesus commissioning his people to go and witness and evangelize. And Jesus says, I give to you all authority under heaven and earth. It's been given to me, and I give it to you now. If Jesus is the ultimate king of kings, the ultimate ruler, then he has, and he has given authority for his people to evangelize to the whole world, then when we go and witness and evangelize to others, we can do so having the authority of the king of kings right behind us. Mark's Gospel. As we said, Mark, his depiction of Jesus is the fast miracle worker. Jesus is able to physically heal us. But more importantly, he's able to spiritually heal. If God physically heals a heart that's a bit busted, perhaps that heart survives for another five, ten years, but it will eventually fall apart like all, all human bodies are destined to do. But if God can spiritually transform a heart, now that's something that will last for eternity. All of us will get sick. All of us will one day run our days on earth. But a transformed heart, that is what we will take with us into eternity. This Jesus also has the power over the natural world. He's the Jesus who calms storms. This is the the Jesus who protects us from physical danger. But this Jesus also has power over the supernatural world. He exercises demons and he reclaims territory from Satan. And so we have nothing to fear from the devil and his forces so long as we protect ourselves in Christ. Mark's Jesus is quick. He does things immediately immediately. And that's very comforting and reassuring. Sometimes when we pray to God, we, want, we need something to happen fast. We need an immediate response. And God is like that. No, whenever people call God, no one goes to voicemail. God's quick. He picks up the phone immediately. Now, the answer to our prayer may happen immediately. It may happen later. But rest assured, God listens immediately to what we have to say. And Jesus once again calls his followers to follow him in this ministry. If Jesus' ministry was to go quickly and immediately to wherever help was needed and perform healings and miracles, the same is true for his followers. If we see uh, need, we have to respond immediately. And if possible, spiritually heal those that are in need. Not only uh, not only help them physically, but help them spiritually like Jesus did. Luke, to Luke, Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the whole universe. And yet, he takes time to listen to our individual struggles. That's a pretty tough gig, isn't it? Jesus is holding up the entire universe in his hands. And then I can imagine, you know, we pray to him, we tell him what's going on. And he goes, yeah, yeah, what is it? And he does it easily. It's no burden for Jesus. We can come to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just listen. This Jesus is able to empathize with us. Jesus has lived the human life. And so he's experienced many of the things we have. Hunger, exhaustion, busyness, stress, temptation, trials, persecution, pain, sickness, rejection, grief, poverty, None of these things are things that Jesus cannot relate to. And so when we come to Jesus and we pour our hearts to him, Jesus doesn't just listen. He also empathizes with us. He's able to relate personally to our experiences. Jesus is also very, uh, very much focused on ensuring that all people are invited into his kingdom. All throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to the outcasts, those who would be often thrown to the curb. Jesus wants to invite all, rich, poor, free, slave, male, female, young or old, all are invited into his kingdom. And finally, John. To John, Jesus is God. God became a man, fully God, fully man. And here is a beautiful promise. Because God has dwelt with humanity, humanity can be assured that they will one day dwell with God. Jesus is the creator of the universe, as we found in John chapter 1. And one day he will recreate it again and make it perfect. Through Jesus becoming a man, becoming a human, God shows his love to the world and he challenges his followers, to do the same, to show that same love to the world. So through these four Gospels, we see four different faces of who Jesus is. And if you would like to explore this topic further, I'd highly recommend this book, The Four Faces of Jesus, from which I got many of the ideas this morning, uh, written by a lecturer from Avondale College. Very beautiful book, um, you should be able to get it at, uh, order it from Better Books and Foods. Uh, Robert MacIver, Robert K. McIver. We went through a real speed tour of the four Gospels. We just looked at the openings of each one. If you really want to understand the true complexity and uniqueness of each Gospel, I would highly recommend uh, pursuing further the information in this book. <clears throat> but through each of the four Gospels we see four different faces of who Jesus is, and all of them are equally true. Each gospel gives us hope, inspires us, and challenges us differently. And as Christians, I believe we should spend time in each of these gospels, appreciating the different perspectives that each author gives to us. We have to make sure as well, though, not to spend too much time in one perspective and neglect the others. We shouldn't spend too much time just thinking of Jesus as a humble servant and not recognize that he's also the divine God-man. And we can't get too preoccupied with Jesus being a miracle worker and also forget that he's the king of kings. These are all four perspectives of Jesus that we need to explore together at the same time and not, not stay in one place so long that we neglect the other perspectives that the gospel writers give to us. So, when you need courage to evangelize to a friend or are tempted by sin and you want to follow God's law, trust in Jesus as your King of Kings. When you're struggling with sin or wrestling with your faith, turn to Jesus, the miracle worker, and he'll be there immediately. When you're wanting to share the trials or the joys of life with someone, speak to the humble servant Jesus who is slow and takes the time to listen and empathize with you. And when you look at this sinful world and your heart desires to already just be with God, be with him in his presence, have faith in the recreative power of Jesus, the divine God-man, who dwelt with humanity, assuring us that humanity will one day dwell with him. So my appeal to you this morning is please take the time to read through these four different Gospels very carefully. Enjoy and just be in awe of the four different perspectives each Gospel writer gives about who Jesus is. And I invite you to accept the challenges that Jesus gives to us through each of these different authors. Each of them challenges us in a different way to follow Jesus' ministry in a slightly different way. But more importantly, all of these different perspectives point us to the one same Jesus to whom we have to commit our lives. And this is something that we don't do just once and then that's it. The relationship's good. We keep committing to that relationship. Never give up. up. There's um, a a really good video that myself and Sorrowville watched on... um, you know, building up positive relationships in your marriage. And the, the, the commentator was saying, or the speaker was saying that too often, this is perhaps a stereotype, but too often men will just say, I love you, and then not often enough. They, they, they just say it once. They say, if anything changes, I'll tell you. But until then, you know I love you. Not the best way to build up a relationship. Maybe, I'm not sure. Sorrowville doesn't seem to mind. <laughs> but the same principle is very true for our relationship with God. It's not something that we commit to once, we say to God, we say to Jesus once, Hey, I want to be in this loving relationship with you, and then that's the end of it. It's a daily commitment that we make to Jesus to follow him and to accept the the challenge and the call that he gives to us in these Gospels. So that is my challenge for us this morning, that we accept again, recommit again our lives to Jesus. And I implore you, read through the Gospels and see these four different and beautiful perspectives, these four different beautiful faces of who Jesus is.